0: Hello and welcome to The Celebratory Stack. We speak with Rob Orchard from Delayed Gratification. The Slow Journalism magazine celebrates its 50th edition. We also talk to Monaco's Josh Fannett, who edited the third installment of our paperback series, The Monaco Companion. And finally, The Jungle Journal is back on the show too. Enjoy. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show welcoming into the studio a Stack friend. We've been covering them almost from the beginning. Rob Orchard from Delayed Gratification, the smart title that puts into perspective stories from previous months. The magazine is a delight to read and have been expanding organically throughout the years. And now they've reached their 50th issue. To celebrate it, Let's hear it from Rob.
1: It seems to have passed by in a flash, more or less. So, I suppose issue 50 at four issues a year, that's 12 and a half years we've been going for. And so, yeah, I think we are quite, we are feeling quite celebratory. I mean, I suppose the backdrop to all of that has been the collapse of large swathes of the kind of the publishing industry, and particularly the
0: print publishing industry. So the fact that we're still here and going strong is nice. But you knew it. Tell us about the beginnings, because it's, of course, uh, slow journalism, and I think you knew that people would be interested in that. I mean, it's not all about 24-7. We want more analysis as well. And I think you were one of the first to notice that.
1: Well, this was the thing. So we launched this magazine back in January of 2011, and so we've been working on it throughout 2010. And we were looking out over this media landscape, which was quite barren and desolate. Everybody was convinced that digital was going to be the answer for publishing, but nobody had quite figured out a way to make any money out of digital and you know these big long-standing print publications were cutting staff and they were cutting freelance rates and they were doing you know kind of much less ambitious journalism and local journalism was collapsing and twitter was just starting to push ahead and there was live blogging so journalists were basically on the back foot because there were fewer of them with fewer resources and they were being asked to produce more and more faster and faster which felt like a recipe for disaster so we had this idea of a magazine delayed gratification which would return to big stories after the dust had settled and once every three Months it would kind of winnow out all of the white noise and return to the stuff that really really mattered and you know it's found an audience for itself which is lovely but it was a little bit of a I'm not sure that we knew when we launched that it it would work at all I think we just had a big B in our bonnets about it
0: well and it really expanded I mean you had books events and all mm. sorts and and I actually am very happy to say that I have issue one in front of me as well which is incredible I'm sure it's worth a lot of money but it, it's <laughs> mine it's my copy listeners I'm sorry <laughs> uh, and and again. What I like about it, of course, I can see a lot of changes. But at the same time, it kept the same spirit. I mean, it's not that change that is completely unrecognisable. For example, a good one, I have to say, the font is a bit bigger. Oh, my goodness. That's what were we
1: playing at? Exactly. With the issue on front? I mean, You need to be
0: quite young to actually be able to read it. So
1: I gave a copy um, to my <laughs> uncle when it had published. And I said to him, oh, what do you think of the magazine? He says, I don't know. I can't read it. And it was something like 7.2 points, which anybody who knows anything about kind of point size will know is ridiculous. But we had so much that we wanted to cram into it. And I mean, I think that's the other thing is that it feels like a very frantic magazine because we crammed about two magazines worth of content into it, which often happens with the first issue because you're so excited about it, you've been thinking about it for such a long time and you don't want any idea to go kind of unpublished. And quite often, so I teach this class in how to launch an independent magazine, and quite often I'll talk about in that the importance of getting your first issue out because until then you can't see what's wrong with it. Like, for example, the fact that nobody can actually read the words. Oh,
0: I, I can. I, I do. I do. And, and, and tell us, you know, you teach how to make an independent magazine. What are the main tips here as well? Because we're talking here about consistency. We're at issue 50, you know, over a decade. That's that's incredible. We're talking about independent title, even for a more commercial title. It's already quite hard, right? It is. I think you're exactly
1: right about consistency. So people need to know what it is that they're getting. Mm. But I think the, the number one thing for me is is niche. So it's filling a niche. It's meeting an audience that is not serviced and that is distinct. So I get a lot of people at magazine classes saying to me, oh, I've got an idea for a magazine. It's a travel magazine, but with a twist. Because it's also about food, or it's a food magazine with a twist. Because it's also about fashion. I was like, neither of those are niches. That's far, far, far too broad. So you need something. I think that you can sum up in just one sentence. Like, what is this thing for? Oh, it's the slow news magazine that returns to big stories after the dust has settled. Okay, so I, I know what that is, kind of immediately. Because if you can't do that, it's so difficult to build an audience because we are bombarded with so many messages all the time, so many people wanting a piece of us, so many people wanting our money and our attention, that unless you can do that initial cut through, it doesn't really matter how beautiful the magazine is is not going to flourish, I don't think.
0: Do you think the cover is important? I mean, I love the delayed gratification covers, I have to say. You know, mainly illustration, but I know sometimes you experiment. To, I think, I believe the last one was a photograph, right? Oh, so it was very similar to a photograph. So the mm. last one was oh, beautiful. Right. So it's an amazing
1: artist. And she paints beautiful paintings of motorways. And so it's motorway scenes, which seems like a very kind of uninspiring start, but actually they're beautiful because each of the paintings has a story behind it. So one of the ones that we put on the cover was about a motorway bridge that she always saw when she was traveling back and forth from the north to visit her her father. So it was a thing that was imbued with meaning first. So we've always done, from issue one, when we had Shepherd Fairy, um, piece of Shepherd Fairy artwork on the cover, and in, interviewed him inside. We've always had an artist on the cover, and we like some big names. So we've had Wei Way, we've had Grayson Perry, we've had Beatrice Milhazes, but then also we like up and coming artists, people that are not so well known. We like to give them a, a platform. And for issue 50, we've done something very different. It's a it's a departure for us, which is for the first time ever, we allowed, our, allowed, <laughs> we asked our art director, who's um, very talented man called Christian we asked him to design a cover for us and we talked about some different options and of course as you know infographics have always been a big part of what we what we do so he came up with the idea of doing an infographic representation of everything that's ever been in the magazine so this is on the front cover it's an infographic representation of each issue issue by issue it's got these spikes on it showing thematically which themes were covered so things like crime and terrorism environment war u.s politics things like that and the amount of pages given to it so that involved us and all the best infographics involve a ridiculous amount of research so that involved us going back through every single issue and codifying each feature by its primary theme and then saying how many pages it took up and so there's a key to it and um, for those of the listeners who end up getting a copy of the magazine there's a key to it on page seven where you can just sort of see These big stories coming and going. And it's kind of fascinating because you can see the spikes where the Brexit referendum came in, where major events in terms of climate change happened, the Arab Spring sort of waxed and waned, elements of global terrorism, the election of Donald Trump, COVID-19, Ukraine, all of these stories that came in came out. And you can just see from this infographic when they happened.
0: A very random question, but do you guys accept commissions for infographics? Because you do it very well. And, you know, even when I read newspapers or or some news magazines, they can be quite confusing, I have to say. Well, we have done. clarity We have, There's done. A clarity, yeah, we have yeah. done. I think um we, we do do the occasional commission. The main thing that we do is we go and
1: teach how to make infographics. Mm-hmm. And so we do that in big organizations quite a lot. Mm. And I think the thing about infographics is that they are... It's not complicated but it is a bit mysterious and so what we'll do over the course of two or three hours is explain the kind of the principles and talk about what you can do to really make your infographics cut through and what we often say is that you're much better off with an infographic that's like a 3D pie chart made in Microsoft Paint as long as it's got a beautiful and interesting human story at the heart of it that's the thing that makes them kind of sticky that's the thing that makes people want to spread them around obviously it's lovely if they're beautiful but we see so many examples of people wasting time and attention, marketing budget and you know, design and all these different things are making these bells and whistles infographics that don't cut through because they don't contain a single relatable human story at the heart of them.
0: Tell us about the celebration. I mean, I have here, of course, is a special cover, but what I like about it as well, it's also a normal issue, right? Yeah. I mean, it's also, you're not deviating so much. It's not like the best of delayed gratification. Perhaps in the future, I <laughs> might release a book about that. You know, but uh, so tell us, was that the idea as well? Yeah, so we went through all sorts of different ideas for Mm. issue
1: 50 and so actually the big celebration was initially going to be for 10 years our 10 year anniversary Mm. but that fell sort of smack in the middle of the global coronavirus pandemic Mm. so it wasn't a very celebratory time And so we wanted to do something for this, and we did go through all sorts of different ideas. We were originally going to do a special cover using a special type of print so that it was going to be a kind of reflective cover, or we were going to use a different background colour to make it stand out. We had ideas for gatefalls and all sorts of things like that. And then actually, fundamentally, we just thought it's probably not really about bells and whistles. It's just about putting out a really strong issue. And I think this is one of our strongest. It's filled with interesting stories. We have an extraordinary piece of reportage from a journalist of ours who's based in Turkey, Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. And she travelled around the country visiting the afflicted zones immediately in the aftermath, like literally the day after the earthquake struck, but then also several months afterwards and tells the story of how things changed and how the political story evolved. We've got a fascinating story about the future of virtual travel. Now, this might be of interest, so this is fascinating to me. So this idea that we're at a meeting point of technologies now where it might be the case in a few years' time that you say, right, we could spend several thousand pounds on flying to Lanzarote for a week and sort of going to a three-star hotel or whatever, or we could spend a few hundred pounds and we could enter a sort of an uh, AR suite... And we could don all of this gear, including haptics, including olfactory units, including strapping yourself onto a, a special harness and using these multi-directional treadmills. And we could go as a group, as a family or as a group of friends. And on the first day, we could visit all of the most interesting sites in the world. So we could take a tour around the Taj Mahal with no crowds, and we could get as up close to the action as we want to. And it would feel like we were genuinely there. And then in the afternoon, we could go canoeing down the Amazon. And then the next day, we could go go skiing in the alps and then do you know what in the afternoon we wouldn't even have to stay on the earth we could go to some triple mooned planet and you know like walk along with dinosaurs and and you know so this this converging of technologies that may mean that actually anybody is able to effectively travel anywhere and because they're so impressive now their brains will register that as having actually taken place
0: That's very interesting. I'm not sure which one I would prefer, but... uh, No, exactly. uh, Rob, what about the business? I mean, of course, when it started, tell us about the expansion, because if you're still here, that means it's doing well in one way or another. Yes. Uh, Tell us a bit more about the business and, and how the expansion plans are going. Yeah, so I would say
1: that we entered this publishing business very naively, with a very poorly thought out business plan, which relied on sales which were absolutely not realised. So actually the first few years were really, really, really tough. And we all kind of made sacrifices in order to make it work because, as I said, we had this being in on it. So it, it was a passion project. The leg gratification has always been something that we just we just felt we really wanted to kind of keep creating. And then there's that expression, isn't there, which is 96 percent of success is turning up. So you get to a certain stage where you've just amassed enough subscribers, enough followers, enough supporters. You've had enough kind of coverage that you can then keep going. And we've always had at heart of it the idea that the magazine should remain advertising free, because it was always a philosophical magazine. Now, that sounds very grand, but it was almost an experiment to see whether you could support good journalism with just readers and subscribers. And so actually, over the years, we've managed to make that work. As I say, we do kind of teaching in big organizations and other things around the side to help things keep ticking over. And now we're at a stage where we're making enough from subscribers and from people coming to classes and from people buying issues and merchandise and things like that, that we can really invest in some really quite ambitious stories we can improve the print quality of the magazine and we're we're about to launch an app so our digital offering so far has not been as good as i wanted it to be but we're working away on an app which ought to be able to allow people i say ought just because you know it's a digital project so it's still happening and and you know it's not done until it's done but basically everybody who subscribes to the magazine will have access to this app and they will be able to download Everything that we've ever done, they'll be able to see it in its beautiful original design, but also as HTML. So it's very readable. They'll be able to listen to audio versions of everything that we've ever done, um, download it offline and so on. And then I have a a sort of a feeling that there might be a possibility once we've got that in place to start to roll out digital versions in other languages. You know, actually, you wouldn't need that many subscribers with that model in order to make a Spanish language version, French language version, Russian, Korean, you know, all, all sorts of different possibilities to support, that. So, I mean, you basically need to take the content, you need to localise some of it, you need to translate it, do the audio and so on. But actually with the structure all in place to manage that, I think it's quite doable. So we're excited about that. We are working on our second book, which is going to be a much more manageable one than our first book, which, which almost killed us. And we're sort of working on a load of ideas for
0: podcasts as well. So there's, there's lots of opportunities. It's funny you mention, uh, you know, international languages as well, because on the first issue, the magazine described itself as the UK's quarterly almanac this kind of disappeared. And and perhaps I'm guessing it's because it's an international magazine, it was exactly, although you're based here, right? It was exactly for that reason. Mm. Um
1: And interestingly, what has happened since then is almost we've gone too far the other way, which is that we started the, the UK's quarterly almanac. and I think we dropped that after a couple of mm. issues. In recent years, we've got to a stage where we're actively looking for more stories from the uk we tend to be actually really quite good on our international coverage but actually our local homegrown coverage is less good so we're kind of really investing in that at the moment and trying to find better stories here in the uk and and kind of new journalists and new photo features and and so on so yeah you're right we did we we took a conscious decision to internationalize it on our first issue being big fans of monocle as we always always were on the back cover we decided to put And the price in different currencies as well. Because we'd always thought it was such a nice thing on Monocle. Oh, you know, like you can get it in yen and, you know, dollars and this. It was such a genuinely international magazine. (laughs) And we put it on that. And at some point, somebody pointed it out to us. That we had accidentally been labeling the magazine as costing two yen, which I think is like like a million pence or something, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody had noticed because it wasn't really being sold in Japan at all. Amazing, Rob.
0: Thank you so much and congratulations
1: pleasure. again. Thank you very much. My absolute pleasure, Fernando.
0: Thank you very much, Rob. From delayed gratification, issue fifty is out now. For more, go to www.slow-journalism.com. And now, it is always good to welcome Monocle's editor, Josh Fannett on the show. He also edited the third installment of the Monocle Companion, this time with a brightly colored yellow cover. The paperback series always features 50 essays, from the power of a good recommendation to an ode to a lie-in. Here is my chat with Josh, plus Monocle's plans for the summer. Josh Vannert, welcome back to the stack. There's a new companion out. First of all, tell us about the colour of the cover. I think that's a very important subject that I think our listeners should know.
2: Radio is such an imperfect medium for discussing <laughs> that, print, is You skirted, skirted so neatly around that, or thought you did. Yeah, it's great to be back, Fernando. Thank you very much for having me back on The Stack. My favourite print industry review that I listen to every single week. We're here for the third instalment of The Companion, which, if listeners are not aware is a paperback format which you've kindly profiled on the stack before and has been on newsstands. We launched the first one in the summer last year with a lovely peach-coloured cover. We went back with a cool grey cover for the second instalment and I actually can't believe it. It's one of my favourite things that we do here at Monocle. This book of 50 essays, this third companion, 50 Ideas for a Better World, is in your favourite colour, Fernando, and this is where the drum roll gets dropped in. It's yellow.
0: I love it. I think it matches the summer vibes as well. And it's been quite a successful project for Monocle, right, Josh? I think I remember you telling me, uh, I believe, at the first one, that you were almost surprised. I mean, of course, we knew it would would be a success. So perhaps there was very much an appetite for this type of things. Can you explain to us again the concept
2: for the Monocle Companion and what makes a good essay to be in it? Yeah, of course. But there's a lot there. And I think, you know, people who listen to this show regularly, people who like Monocle, are probably predisposed to think that magazines are interesting and important but i think it's a bit of a wonder to look around today and see so many independent magazine stores to see news agents to see bookshops brimming with interesting new titles the medium of print and publishing is very very old but the way of doing it can be brought up to date and it can be an interesting business proposition so you mentioned success We have an advertiser on board with this, all of the companions that we've done in the past. We've worked with a commercial advertiser who offset a lot of the cost of doing it. And then we sell it on newsstand. And in both respects, we've seen people coming back, people saying, wow, what an interesting innovative thing, you know, printing on paper in Germany, you know, who'd have thought that would be interesting and innovative. And as you say, it comes down to the storytelling inside. So inside, there are 50 essays. They're between 500 words and 4,000 words for the long reads. There are some illustrations by Sunday Kids, a duo of Bangkok-based illustrators, super talented. And what makes a good essay? As I've edited these and over time as I've worked at Monocle, I tend to think what makes an interesting story is kind of the same thing that makes an interesting conversation, although it's different because you sit down with it. There should be some intimacy to it. You should feel what the writer is thinking. You need some sense of them, some sense of place, some sense of where the story is coming from, and a little bit of vulnerability as well. I don't think people want to sit down on their sun lounger or tuck a book into their tote bag, which is full of people hectoring them and wagging their finger. They're generally nudges, nods, ideas, and, you know, the idea of 50 ideas for a better world sounds quite high-minded, but it's actually really not. They are little nudges about how to choose our words more wisely, how to change our habits. There's one about how to renovate a house. There's one about someone who goes to a silent retreat. And there's a a bit of controversy in there as well. Um, We've got Simon Anholt, an ad man, a thinker who founded the Good Countries Index, who's written about why we should go easy on greenwashers. And he's not saying we should just pollute the planet. Mm. He's saying that greenwashing is an example of people doing the right things kind of for the wrong reason. And he examines this idea and why we need to be a little bit more tolerant in order to get people who we disagree with on side. So they're all little nudges. And I think what makes a great essay is personality, a sense of place, and also to remember that people don't just read to be educated and to be told, they read to be entertained as well so like your own essay, which I'm sure we'll come to in a second, there needs to be some, a bit of wit, a bit of wisdom and a bit of fun as well, We, you know, we can't go around being like the broadsheets every single day and and scowling at the world, we need to find some humour and fun in it if we're going to improve it
0: I agree, there's a sense of optimism in it and one of my favourite ones by Saul Taylor, The Power of Recommendation which is something so simple but it was super nice to read, you know, which is, uh, you know, especially these days, you're all sharing articles, but this is, for example, Josh, I read this article, I thought of you, or you do like a newspaper cutting and I leave in your desk. I think this is so interesting. It's so obvious, but he made it for such a nice essay as well.
2: Well, I think the interesting thing about the idea of recommendation is like so much of daily life, we're looking for hacks, technology, things to make the distance between the thing we want and us consuming it much, much smaller. So a phone is a great idea. I say, I want to visit a restaurant in Turin or in Rio de Janeiro or in Toronto. And I'm crowdsourced, a big tech company where people give things stars. And the people that give those things stars might have a range of reasons for wishing the company ill. They might be trying to extort a free meal out of the owner. They might have terrible taste. They might not be the kind of people I want to have dinner next to anyway. So the essay on the idea and power of recommendation isn't about, saying technology is bad it's just saying that technology is quite bad at doing certain things like giving you a balanced view of the world or offering a real pinpoint accurate idea of what a local might be able to offer you which is a great restaurant a great bar in a city and actually the writer of that Saul Taylor will no doubt be on the stack soon because he's launched his own magazine which is all about recommendation and obviously worked at Monocle for many years honing his writing and his skills there so great to support him but I think the nub of that and the nub of some of the other essays, whether they reference politics, whether they're talking about philosophy, they come back to what it means to be a human being. And maybe some of the assumptions, you know, the quickest way is the best way, technology is, is, is the answer to everything, are subtly questioned throughout the book as well. Absolutely.
0: And, and of course, the book ends very well with your own essay, A Common Sense Manifesto. I think that's
2: such a nice way to wrap things up in the ideas of the book as well. Well, I just think we try and be a bit of a common sense manifesto with Monocle Radio and with the magazine and with our books. But, you know, it just struck me as I was writing it that we talk about companies in the news every day that have had billions of pounds put into them and have never turned a profit. And then we... We wonder when they go out of business, what was going on there. We look at people taking and manufacturing products that are terrible for the environment. And we say that it's good because they're positive for communication or, you know, electric cars are the future. Are electric cars the future or are they full of filthy energy? You know, there's a much more nuanced world of things going on. And I weirdly, I think when we think about business, As we espouse on shows like The Entrepreneurs, a successful business doesn't mean a business that grows super fast and then makes everyone redundant. It's a business that's there to last. It's one that has a positive effect, that treats its staff well, that thinks about how and where things are made. And I think everything we do with Monocle, we have super smart readers and we have super smart listeners. We're not trying to talk down to people. We're trying to talk up to them and say, well, hang on. Have you challenged yourself to do the best you possibly can? And while I started the point by saying that the companion doesn't hector or or, or lecture, I think it nudges and it prods. Mm. And the positive response we've had from readers about the 50 essays, about the the previous two, have been that they do have a bit of a a sparkle in their eye. They are positive, but they're also nudging people to try and do their best, whether they're hosting a fine radio show, Fernando, whether they're writing articles, whether you've started a business – They're just trying to get people to think about what they're doing and small, subtle, interesting ways they could perhaps think about doing it better.
0: Love that. Uh, Josh, as you're here, can you give us a preview of perhaps other Monaco projects for the summer? I mean, we're always full of projects, right? And we don't stop even in the mid-summer. Tell us a bit more. I hear there's a newspaper out soon.
2: There's a lot going on. So the July-August issue of Monocle is on newsstand. It's a, a mighty whacker of an issue with our quality of life survey in it. And you can read my article about 25 ways to improve our cities, among many, many other things. It's a sunny delight. That's on newsstands now. That is your definitive summer read, but not to leave you high and dry this summer season, we are also going to be doing a newspaper, which will be out in the first week of August in all of the sunnier resorts around the world. So not quite the same global reach as the magazine, a little bit more focused and tailored to seasonal resorts. That's going to be full of, again, delights, the delight of jumping into water, the delight of being on a beach, but also some interesting businesses around these kind of warmer climates. We also have a new book out, Fernando, which comes out, I believe, on the 21st of this month. That's called Sun and Swim. That's available through Monocle at first and then in all good bookshops. And yeah, I think that's enough to get people going, isn't it? They've got a Sun and Swim book for the tote bag. They've got the newspaper. They've got the July-August issue. And they've also got the Monocle Companion, which, between you and I, is my favourite. And now, Fernando, I don't know if we have time for this. We have. But I'd like to turn questioner. Please. You wrote an essay for the Companion. Tell us what it's about.
0: That was one of my favorite actually pieces I wrote because I feel very strong about it. It's an ode to the lion. The lion, okay. Exactly. So you know, Josh, I, I feel a bit anxious when I hear interviews with CEOs or people saying, I like to wake up at 4 a.m. and I do my exercise and it's all quiet. I am someone that like to take things very easy, the first thing when I wake up. And I even suggest, even when you're traveling, to be honest, this article was inspired by my trip to Milan. Because I went there for the weekend. And I just left my hotel at midday. And I still managed to have a wonderful day. I didn't feel any pressure. And I think people should learn that. Chill out, take your time. Of course, I'm not hectoring. Some people do enjoy waking up at 4am, not me.
2: Well, I think that's amazing. And that does the other thing which a great essay does in which I tell writers and tell journalists Mm. and tell people who are pitching you can tell a very local story, a very specific story, mm. but the real beauty of an essay is when that very specific thing touches on something much broader that might mean something. If you're reading it in San Francisco, if you're reading it in Singapore, if you're reading it in Sao Paulo, and actually you, you go into some research around how unhealthy it is for children to be forced to get up so early in the morning, how it's terrible for their growth and knowledge retention, and how the culture of efficiency around... I don't know, having every 15 minutes of your time mapped out on your phone, having alarms to wake you up, having push notifications to tell you every time something happens. Maybe we need to step back from this world of efficiency, crack the spine of a good book, turn our phones off and have a little nap, sleep in. The new Monaco Companion is
0: out now. Go to monaco.com for more. Let's discuss now the volume three of the Jungle Journal, a print and digital title covering themes around the environment, global cultures, ecosystems, and indigenous activism. I had the pleasure to speak with one of the founders, Sara Elisa Lopez, about the new issue and her plans for expansion.
3: We are a travel, culture, and environmental title. We have been releasing once a year, but we are shifting into gears to start releasing twice a year. And yeah, we cover topics of environmental importance. We try and cover traditions and celebrations of various cultures around the world, touch on important impending topics related to climate change, human rights. Every issue is a different region. Uh, The first issue that we launched was covering Latin America. Volume two covered East Africa. And volume three is Southeast Asia, specifically the archipelagos of Southeast Asia.
0: And it's fascinating because perhaps, you know, it's a region, you know, I'm not an expert, but I've been reading lovely stories for this one uh, I have in front of me, Capturing the Filipino Spirit. I love it. It feels quite in depth as well. So tell us about the amount of research that you guys do, because I think, of course, you guys have to travel as well for it. Uh, It must be quite challenging in a way.
3: It's a lot to juggle I will say but it's it's such a deep passion of mine personally I can only speak as as my side of things it's a lot on my plate but because I'm passionate about it it doesn't feel like a lot it just all kind of comes intuitively as well as far as the storylines and it just being an international and and global magazine that has always been a very important drive for me travel and and sharing wisdom from all around the world with people specifically in the west but i think as we become more globalized the importance of knowing different cultures and being cultured <laughs> and educated has become way more apparent to me as i as i've gotten older it's struggling a lot in terms of also like what stories are going to come through but this third one it just kind of unfolded naturally just contacts that i had using my network and people had some very interesting stories to tell. This issue had the most contributors compared to the previous two. That capturing the Filipino spirit in particular is very fascinating because it's just touching on all of the contributions to the Filipino culture. And that kind of, you know, merges as we all know, Spain colonized the Philippines, but so did other empires. So, you know, people forget that in the southern Philippines, they're predominantly Muslim. And it's just kind of difficult to kind of label the Philippines as, oh, a bunch of Catholics, even though there is a lot of that. They also have other cultural nuances and participate in other religions. And it just kind of gives more context to what we see on the surface. So... It's a very, very cool article, and there's more like it in there that, that you'll find. It's my favorite issue so far.
0: <laughs> no, I, I, I love it. I love the photography, the articles as well. And tell us about your life. I mean, how busy it is, how much is it dedicated to travel in a way? Because, I mean, reading the issue, I can see, as I said, how in-depth uh, you guys go, especially perhaps in regions that I'm not sure if you were an expert in Southeast Asia, for example. But tell us a bit more about that.
3: You know, I'm not an expert in Southeast Asia, and a lot of time, it's almost kind of like an actor, like when you're getting ready for a role, and you're just really immersing yourself in a character. That's kind of what I do with the regions. I'm listening to the music, I'm reading up on different articles I can find online, I'm watching documentaries, I'm just like absorbing it all, the good and the bad. I've already been in my research phase for the upcoming release, which is going to be the Western Balkans. And I was watching a documentary on, on World War One because the former Yugoslavia, which is now part of the Western Balkans, someone from there ignited the whole start of World War One, And it was just really heavy. There's a lot involved because you're taking in the history, you're taking in these cultural patterns and almost like you're seeing the origin of of a people, of a group, of a community. And, and it's a lot. And you're trying to understand and figure out what is the best way to convey this to the world so people can understand better what's happening. And when they go into those spaces, what context do they need to be able to go in and be better travelers, be more empathetic travelers, to respect the space that they're in? That's a lot of the intention behind how the editorial content comes
0: through. Well, and as you've mentioned, even looking at the masthead, you can see how global the title is. Even, for example, I know you and Gabriel, of course, founders of the title, but you're based in the US, he's in Spain. That's already a sign that is, you know, different cultures together. Correct. Yeah. What about in terms of the readership? Do you have a main market? Is it quite perhaps split? Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious about that other side of the business.
3: Yeah, you know we do really well in mexico and spain specifically mm-hmm. barcelona and mexico city i would say are are two and lisbon lisbon is is has been great those three destinations have been very very just awesome with sales um but we are spread out across the european continent the north american continent and we're growing in asia now we're starting to expand over there especially with this third release it, it feels appropriate we're all becoming more globalized. The goal is to to have a reach that is global. So we'll be looking forward to that in the coming years of just expanding.
0: Thank you, Sarah. And the third issue of The Jungle Journal is out now. For more, go to it's itsthejunglejournal.com. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonocle.com. We'll be back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Before we go, a little song for you. Get Happy by Happy Thought Home. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.